Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobar dan everyone and welcome to Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society and new technologies. Back in 2021, for the 10th editions of Tactics and Practice, writer and tech journalist Marta Peirano conceived and led a series of conversations with a range of world-class thinkers entitled Reprogramming Strategies for Self-Renewal. My name is Yanis Fakinyansha, I'm the Artistic Director of Axioma, and I'm ready to share with you the recordings of that event, one episode at a time, once a week. The eight episodes feature Marta in conversation with Kim Sterry Robinson, Benjamin Breton, Holly Jim Buck, Anab Jain, Kate Crawford, Joanna Moll, Astra Taylor and Eyal Baseman. This is episode number seven, entitled Community Talk to Your Neighbors, in which Marta talks with filmmaker, writer and political organizer Astra Taylor. The second part of the recording is spiced up by questions from social movement researcher Tiasha Pureber, human rights activist Barbara Reigel, activist and social worker Asya Hervatin, and our dear online audience. If you missed the previous episodes, you can easily find them wherever you are listening to this one. So, without further ado, here we go. Marta Perano talking to Astra Taylor. Hi. How are you all doing? Well, in the nature of mass demonstrations published in May 68, the British thinker John Berger argued that mass demonstrations were rehearsals for revolution and that their main function was not to change the status quo or the rulers or the world in general, but the demonstrators themselves. And I quote, those who take part become more positively aware of how they belong to a class. Belonging to that class ceases to imply a common fate and implies a common opportunity. Astra Taylor, our brilliant guest today, is a phenomenal thinker, essayist, and documentary filmmaker. But the reason why I wanted so badly to have her in the reprogramming series is because on top of all that, she's been a lifelong, persistent, fearless and extremely successful organizer and also a very good historian and critic of social movements. You will discover that very quickly if you read her last book, a collection of essays titled Remake the World, Essays, Reflection, Rebellions, and spoiler alert, in order to remake or to reprogram the world, you need collective action and you need to learn to organize. Well, we have learned over the last few months that technology can definitely help us, but it will not save us. So to discuss this and everything else, thank you for coming and welcome to Reprogramming Astra Taylor. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's wonderful to be here with you. And thank you for that incredibly just generous and kind introduction and for having me. And it's nice to virtually be wherever we are, but also to be in Slovenia. So um, yeah, I'm excited for this. It sounds like it's going to be a big conversation. So let's do it. Well, let's start by celebrating the 10th year anniversary of Occupy. So happy 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. It's been 10 years since people decided to, to sit and stay at Sukoti Park 
and you are obviously one of its best and better known narrators and critics. And you said that more than anything, Occupy created a space for people to find each other, which for me kind of mirrors this burger idea of becoming aware of being part of a class. In this case, a very, very big class, the class of the 99%. So I was wondering, like now that it's been 10 years, if you, you've written long and hard about this, what do you think made this moment so special? Like what happened at that park that made people stick, that, that made mm. people just keep coming? Yeah, it is, you know, it's, it's interesting to have these periods of time, these anniversaries to think and reflect. 10 years, what does it mean? You know, if I had been reflecting on Occupy five years later, I'd have a different perception of it. I think with the benefit of hindsight, this much hindsight, a decade, we can see that Occupy certainly has shifted American politics in critical ways, though not as much as I would like. Um, and I think there was a, a phrase people used to say at Occupy Wall Street, which is, you know, people used to say, Occupy changed the conversation. And at Zuccotti Park in those days, I would think, but I, I don't just want to change the conversation. I want to change the economy. I want to change power dynamics. <laughs> and, you know, I think now I, I'm realizing after 10 years of intense organizing just how hard that is and how actually critical it is that we help to change the conversation here. I also want to put Occupy in an international context. Occupy Wall Street was 100% inspired by what was happening internationally. There would be no Occupy Wall Street without the Arab Spring, without the movement of the squares. The Indignados were a huge inspiration. People came and spoke at Zuccotti Park and, and actually gave solidarity, but also warnings and advice from, from Spain. Occupy Syntagma Square in Greece, right? I mean, this was a, an international phenomenon and that international dimension was really critical. And it was part of what felt so uh, unusual about Occupy Wall Street because the United States is a very narcissistic place. <laughs> and so feeling that sense of global connection and that we're actually, a recognition that we're up against a global system, I think was part of its appeal, you know, to suddenly find that the community was both there in the space of the park, but actually it was also international. I love that. I do want to acknowledge that you're quoting one of my favorite writers, John Berger, who is an inspiration to me uh, in ways kind of intangible and also quite literal. I mean, I think my film, my most recent film, What is Democracy, features paintings in a way that I think is a direct inspiration of John Berger's ways of seeing, you know, this idea that the world, we need to shift our perception and see the world in this political way and, and in this imaginative way. And, and I I both love the quote that you started with, and I also, um, I guess I'd add that I think it is both, right? You, you want to both change participants and change the world, and it's that dialectic of doing both. Because there can be corners of social movements that are quite uh, insular, that are focused only on the internal experiences of the people there, and their, their, even their purity or their perception or their self-expression. And so for me, I want to, to say, Yes, you know, our experiences as individuals matters, but it's what we do collectively. As you said, we have to get organized. It's what we do strategically. And through collective action, through strategy, through coming together, we actually change ourselves. So it's always intersubjective. It's always interpersonal. And um, yeah, and that's, you know, and I, I want us to both feel transformed as human beings, but I really do want to remake the world. I mean, we are on an absolutely unjust, unsustainable path. And 
you know, I'm a, like everyone in the U.S. overwhelmed by what's happening here, but we're on a very, you know, terrifying trajectory. And so we need some, like, we need again to go beyond the conversation to changing those power structures urgently. Yeah, absolutely. Like I find that one of the, one of the eternal discussions about whether or not protests are, you know, even worth it, no? Like is it worth the time and the effort and the, and the, I don't know, like the <laughs> socializing for introverts like me, for instance. And one of the, one of the reasons why this question comes up on and on again is that people expect that you will go on the street and in three days you will have taken down the government or something, no? Like there is a way of narrating this, this, uh, this kind of intervention by the people that has been twitterfied in a way, no? Like time suddenly seems to happen very fast. Like, you know, the French Revolution or the Russian <laughs> Revolution seem to have happened in like three days, no? Like people go on the street and then this happens. And one of the elements I think it's interesting about this particular time of Occupy is, of course, the internet and the digital platforms. And I remember that one of the things, one of the two things that you did during Occupy was, I mean, one of them was running a magazine, the Occupy magazine, where you were even commissioning articles from people from other Occupy movements all mm -hmm. over the world, which was really fascinating thing to follow. And the other thing you did was writing a book, one of my favorite books of the time, actually, called The People's Platform, where you were somehow reflecting on the paradoxical differences between the way the Arab Spring use of Facebook and Twitter and these digital platforms have been portrayed in the media and the way it was being portrayed in the United States, where these platforms, of course, belong and I guess sometimes play by the rules. So can you maybe talk about how you found this paradoxical then and how your way of seeing these tools as tools for protesting and organizing and maybe for the revolution have changed over the last few years? Yeah, so 2011, I was, uh, before Occupy Wall Street, I was working on my book, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in a Digital Age. And that book said things that are now much more common sense. So the fact the, at the time, though, the discourse was that social media, connective technologies were democratizing, that people could now speak without gatekeepers, we didn't need the traditional media, and that this would have a revolutionary impact. And so American commenters were going around and saying, look at the Arab Spring, look at what happened in Iran. And they would say, oh, what happened in Iran was a Twitter revolution. What happened in Egypt is a Facebook revolution, which is then, of course, giving credit to American corporations for uh, for the activities of liberation that people are doing, <laughs> you know, that people on the ground under very harsh conditions are doing. And of course, there were flaws. I mean, there were just so many flaws in this uh simplification. I mean, one, it was just advertising for the tech companies because it didn't at all examine their business models, which are a form of corporate surveillance, didn't look, examine the fact that what these companies do is they're, they're centered, as you said, not just in the United States, but in Silicon Valley in California. And they are global companies that extract value globally and then 
concentrate it in the hands of, of technologists and investors, right? And concentrate capital, further exacerbating inequality. I'd also, you know, didn't talk, they don't talk about the increased power of advertisers, the fact that even if something is free, it's of course, you know, uh, tied into a larger economy of, um, of advertising and targeted marketing, which has all sorts of pernicious effects. And also they never looked, they never sort of turned around to go, well, what kind of revolution do we need in the United States? <laughs> you know, what sort of, you know, it was sort of this, this idea that, you know, Every, we, it, we in the liberal United States are a democracy. And so it's these other countries that need the internet to liberate them. They need our technologies to liberate them. So, uh, and then there was a, you know, an, the idea that, well, politics had sort of gone digital. People weren't supposed to protest in the street. You know, what, we can do all of this stuff through these internet channels. I thought what was so interesting about Occupy was that, one of the things that was interesting about Occupy was that um, what people seemed to, what, the people who came to Zuccotti Park seemed to take from that moment was actually, it's less about the technology and more about coming together as bodies in space. You know, yes, we use the tools, we find each other, we live stream, but ultimately we come to a park, we make a kitchen, we start a library, we, you know, we start a school in effect, a school of democracy where we can, um, where we can meet, where we can talk, where we can finally find others who are also uh, feeling that this system is broken. And it was very, it was a very interesting mix of very embodied and both, but also while using these digital tools. Uh, so for me, Occupy, you know, uh, influenced the people's platform in this way that it, because it, it created space to have a class analysis. It Occupy created space to talk about capitalism, right? So, so I was able in my book, which came out a couple of years later, to just be much more direct about economics, about the, the intersections of digital technology and capitalism, capitalist modes of investment, capitalist modes of extraction. Uh, and so that was a huge relief. I mean, it was something that really, um, I kind of shuddered to think about what the, the cultural environment would have been like when I released my book, if Occupy hadn't happened. I think it helped people understand that you could have a kind of, you know, uh, you could have a critique of a system that, focus primarily on inequality because my my point in in the people's platform it's basically just a political economy of social media it's that look these things are not immaterial the cloud is not just a cloud it you know our bits that we are communicating through right now are backed up by atoms by real material things we need a materialist class analysis to understand these tools and that is something that in the united states people were not ready to hear before occupy um but now I think what's interesting for me, and this is how those two experiences continued for, you know, and have carried over for this 10 years, is that on the one hand, Occupy opened space where I kept organizing and I've kept organizing around the question of indebtedness. The 99% in the United States are deeply in debt for student loans, for healthcare, for housing, right? The 99% has less than zero wealth. They have negative wealth. The 1% has reaped all the rewards. So I've kept organizing around that. But after writing the people's platform, I my you know my point is it's the problem isn't the technology itself, it's the business models. It's what incentives are these technologies serving? And so even though I wrote this critique of the internet, what it did was inspire me to use the internet in my organizing to build new tools to build better power. So we have built digital tools that help people resist their debts, challenge their debts, find each other. So the last thing I'll say is debtors, for example, do not share a factory floor. Workers, traditional workers in a labor union, 
work in a workplace physically every day, you know, and that gives them the ability to connect and to fight the boss. Well, debtors are very dispersed. And so we need to create a virtual factory floor, a place where people can find each other. And so, of course, our tools are not, there's not the same political economy. They're not, they're not ultimately there to, to benefit uh, advertisers. They're not sucking data up to sell us things. Instead, we're trying to use data for the people to empower our organizing. So one of the sort of paradoxes, I suppose, that came out of the people's platform is that after critiquing all of these technologists, I was like, oh, well, what if I became one? And I started helping, you know, I didn't build them myself, but I started collaborating with others to build the tools I want to see to empower the 99%. Yeah, because the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, no? <laughs> I mean, I find you can it take like a bit, take a bit there. <laughs> exactly. I really like rereading this book now for this interview because, I mean, not only I enjoyed it a lot the first time, but also I was thinking about how these democratizing tools in the Arab Spring had become the undoing of democracy in the states, not through the dark campaigns that the Russian the Russian bots were doing in 2016 and how they were the tools for organizing basically the assault on the capital in 2020 which is pretty interesting and i was thinking how when you talk about occupy you talk about how the thing that glued you to the protest to to the space was the fact that Instead of just, you know, chanting and, you know, like waving maybe some, I don't know, some papers with things written on them, people were sitting in circles and talking to each other and telling each other things that were shameful to them, like how much money they owed because they were ambitious and went to university and how from that physically being together in the space and openly talking about this elements of their hidden life, like a, a branch of this protest came in the shape of new technologies, new platforms, and even new ways of relating to debt, no? And in this case, I'm obviously talking about the debt collective that you founded and that you've been developing over the last 10 years, and that has been an immensely successful tool for change. Am I mistaken or have you managed to reduce like two billion with a B dollars? Billion in now. Debt? Yeah. Well, that's insane, yeah. insane and amazing. So can you explain how that happened? Yeah. <laughs> how did that go? Yeah there's, so, yeah, there's so much to say. I mean, I think first I want to speak to your initial point about disinformation and the way these tools are now framed as sabotaging democracy in the United States. There's a lot of talk about misinformation. There's a lot of, there is an apocalyptic amount of misinformation circulating about COVID, about climate change, about race, all of these things. But I guess my point, you know, the point in the people's platform is that when you have these corporate platforms that are free, but they are they are funded to, to serve advertisers, right? Facebook is built to serve advertisers. Twitter is built to serve advertisers. Those are information, those are platforms that lie by design, right? Like, you know, we do not talk about advertising as truth or as journalism or as wisdom, right? Or as education. It's advertising. It's bullshit, you know? And so that is that when you build tools 
with this bottom, sorry, with this business model driving them, then there should be no surprise when it's used in the ways we've seen over the last few years. Similarly, in the United States, our elections are totally corrupt. It's all legal, but it is absolutely corrupt. We have basically unlimited corporate spending on, on elections. So, of course, you know, these sources of dark corporate dark money are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to confuse people, to persuade people to stay home and not vote, to not engage, to feel cynical. And they're putting their money into these corporate media, uh, these, sorry, social media platforms and television. I mean, it's the, there's just as much untruth on television. So my point is that we're not seeing anything very new, actually. We're seeing an outgrowth of a business model that has, um, that, that is what was behind cable news and now is behind social media. Again, advertising, unlimited corporate spending on campaigns, a total commercialized political and media sphere. And so this is, I feel like we have, um, so in the preface of the People's Platform, I say we pay too much attention to change. We're like, oh, wow, I have a computer and my phone and it's in my pocket. This is so new. And my point was, what about continuity? There's a lot of continuity between your phone and your television, you know, from that you were watching 30, 40 years ago. It's advertiser driven. <laughs> it's incredibly consolidated. There's corporate consolidation of the networks or of the platforms. Let's look at continuity as well as change. I just think that's, you know, we're getting everything that's happening now with tech was totally predictable. The writing was on the wall many, many years ago. Yeah. As for the the question about the debt collective and how, how that came to be, I mean, you know, I was a political person. Obviously, I went to Occupy Wall Street the first day. I was extremely distressed in 2008 when a handful of greedy banks destroyed the global economy. They did that basically to simplify by selling subprime mortgages to low-income people, not just selling them, <laughs> but lying to people, pushing them on communities, overwhelmingly communities of color, black homeowners, destroying the wealth of working people Black and Latino families in the United States lost over half of their collective wealth after the 2008 financial crisis. So it was a very different crisis than what we're having, having now. This is a crisis from an external shock, the coronavirus that then shuts down the economy. People have to stay home. That was a crisis that's caused internally because some people were basically acting criminally, you know? Um, and raiding these mortgages, buying and selling people's debts, their mortgages, and passing them off as quality assets when they were not that. Uh, and so, you know, given the context of the financial crisis, it makes sense that we would start thinking about debt. Because again, the 2008 financial crisis was all about debt. It was all about those mortgages, people's loans. Um, and so, you know, and yet it still felt as a surprise and a relief when I got to Zuccotti Park and people were talking honestly about their financial situation. And uh, because it, there's so much shame here. If you're, if you're struggling, if you, I mean, if you're not able to get the perfect job or the perfect this and that, or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stigma. And so, but at, at Zuccotti Park, people felt they could talk about it without that judgment. Uh, it was the first place that I ever spoke with others 
others with strangers about my student debt, about the fact I had defaulted on my student debt. And it put it in perspective because I thought, woe is me. I owe $40,000 I can't pay. Well, this young woman next to me owed 120000 This older woman owed all of this student debt and medical debt. Somebody else had a house that was underwater, which means that they owed more on the mortgage than the house was worth. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and what happened in that collectivity was we started to say, well, what if this source of shame, what if these debts we owe are power? What if we reconfigured them? After all, this is money. This is on a corporation's balance book. They want to make money from our debts. Uh, and my friend, David Graeber, the great anthropologist and writer had recently published his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which is a great history of debt that, you know, ended you know, the, the story ended in the financial crisis. And in a sense, he brought, he invited me and others, other friends of his. And it was like, well, let's write the next 5,000 years. Maybe not, maybe the next 50 years, but, you know, let's write the next chapter of this book together. What, you know, what would happen if debtors fought back? So the bankers in that time and still today are very well organized. You know, the people who uh, work in the corporate sector, the creditors, uh, you know, they have their lobbying groups, they write the rules of the economy so that people cannot have, you know, people can never get out from under these debts. They make sure that we don't have free health care. So we have to put our medical care on credit cards. And we thought, well, debtors need to organize too. And we need to engage in what we call economic disobedience to say, I can't pay. I shouldn't pay. I won't pay because everyone deserves to have shelter, to have education, right? To have access to healthcare. Other countries have these things. And, um, and so let's flip the script. Let's turn our shame into solidarity. Let's turn our obligations, our oppressive obligations into obligations to each other to enact our shared power, to challenge the status quo. Um, and so we, our idea basically was what if debtors had unions, just like workers have unions. And we organized the first student debt strike. We built all of these digital tools I mentioned. And we found all sorts of creative ways to win real debt cancellation for people. And the last thing I'll say to kind of track our impact is that some of my collaborators, I wasn't part of planning it, organized a protest uh, at Zuccotti Park in early, uh, uh, in 2012, early on. And they, it was the first time anyone had ever said publicly at a protest, Cancel student debt, free college in the United States. That's our demand. There were articles in the mainstream press basically laughing, saying it will never happen. The government will never cancel debt. Like, get a grip. Get real. Well, 10 years later, Joe Biden, who is not a left-wing person, campaigned promising to cancel student debt. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And we have won, as you said, we have fought and gotten over $10 billion of student debt relief from the government proving that the government can do it. And we're just a very small group. We're not a huge group. And so I think for, it's an example, I hope for others of, you know, well, what happens if you come together and you take your, your crazy idea seriously, you know, and you just, you know, don't give up. <laughs> I mean, that is it. You know, I feel like we just kept, because what we're saying is not that radical ultimately, you know, because debts that can't be paid won't be paid. And free college is a basic fundamental aspect of a, of a democracy, of a decent society, you know? And so we're like, no, what we're saying makes actually it's more sense, more sense than what you're saying, which is you'll drive people into debt 
and kill the freaking planet and destroy their lives. Like, no, we are the rational ones here. So, you know, we've insisted and we've done our, done the work to figure out what rights people have, what power we might have that we've been taught not to see, you know, we've been taught not to see our power. Yeah, because we've been taught not to talk to each other, no? And before I say anything, I want to remind our viewers that you can leave your own questions for Astra in the box that Axioma has provided for. And so talking, like going back to the idea of how powerful it is when people sit down in the same place and physically, like, you know, stand next to each other and talk to each other like doing something together instead of doing it at the same time, which is what happens when you click on a mm -hmm. like or you retweet something, which is not really the same thing, no? You were just reminded me of, of this thing that happened to me some years ago at a women's march. Before the women's march at the newspaper, I remember how the men in the newspaper came to the women in the newspaper that were having a meeting and talking about how, what were we going to do and whether or not we were going to leave the newsroom and just, you know, be on the street and protest and all that. And they came to us and said, what can we do? What can we do for you? Like, we will cover you, we'll do whatever you need. And I remember I suggested, why don't you tell us how much money you earn? <laughs> Because it occurred to me that the most disruptive and revolutionary thing we could do at this point was probably to, to, to see if our newspaper was paying everybody the same for the same job, which it wasn't. <laughs> and of course, everybody found that totally disgusting. Like, you know, no, because, you know, that would be, you know, against the privacy rules and et cetera, et cetera. And this idea of not being able to talk about your debt or to talk about how many you have in the bank and how much money you earn and how much, like all this taboos about money are such a powerful tool <laughs> for this debt scam. Mm -hmm. I find it amazing that something as simple as sitting down on the floor with a thousand of strangers and just, just using your mouth to share the amount of money that you owe can be so incredibly disrupting and also the beginning not only of maybe a friendship or a long-time relationship, but also of a whole platform that will help, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people to get back in shape, I guess. So very, very small thing that it starts very locally. No, yeah. it's not. It's But I love, I love your story. I just want to say how much I love your story. And I think what you just said, you said how disruptive it is to say what you owe, but also disruptive to say what you earn because yeah. there's a shame for many people in saying what they earn. And there's a reluctance. I mean, sorry, there's a shame for some saying what they owe and a reluctance in others to say what they earn because it will reveal their investment, right? In the, in the status quo. Uh, and I think we always have to ask whose interest does this serve when we don't talk honestly about economics, when we don't talk about distribution, because it's not about individuals. It ultimately it will reveal these structural inequalities, as you're saying, that on average, the women are being paid much less The black employees are being paid less and that these are these are inequalities that then compound. So, for example, with debt, if you make less on the job because you are discriminated against because of your race or your gender or your nationality, guess what? You can't pay your debt. Right. As And so then that grows faster. Um, and so you see these inequities. There's lots of research in student debt, for example, that white people in general can pay it off after a few years, 
Well, black borrowers end up owing much more than they borrowed, you know, in the same amount of time. So that's why these things are so important. And I just, I think you're exactly right. I mean, that that's, again, it's just a great story to say, well, we have to begin this challenge of opening our mouths, you know, where we are in our daily lives. The last thing I want to say is that we took inspiration from the PA, uh, like the, the work on mortgages in, in uh, you know, after the indignados when people were trying to defend people, uh, their neighbors from eviction. And so we have a very different legal regime in the United States. But again, we were always looking at what's happening internationally. Who can we take, who can we um, take lessons from? So I just wanted to note that. Yeah, because before Occupy, before going to Occupy and started working on these tools, you were actually studying social movements for quite a while, no? Mm -hmm. So I wonder, like one of the things that you were mentioning at some point was that one of the great things of uh, protests like Occupy is that they are replicable, that you can get there mm -hmm. and see, oh, that's how they set up a library and that's how they share the space and that's how they communicate and and become each other's speakers and all that. But the other thing that you were also saying is that if it becomes viral enough, if it's successful enough, then it can't be replicated anymore. Like it happened with, with the Seattle protests, no? Like, you know, this thing was so successful. It was such a, such a great event that the police was ready for that. So there was nothing to do there. And I wonder when I think about the, I don't know, like the protests that were occupying front pages before the pandemic, the ones in Hong Kong, the ones in Santiago de Chile, these protests were, for me, they were growing into something that was beyond Occupy in the sense that they were becoming yeah. like an everyday thing, no, like a permanent state of things that were somehow washed off with the state of emergency or state of urgency of the pandemic. And how do you see that the new protest, I don't know, style or format or structure would be able to push through this new post-pandemic state? Yeah, it's a big question. I don't know the answer, right? I'm trying to figure that out. I mean, it's interesting when you said I was, I, I was studying social movements, but for myself, right? Not in a academic program or as a scholar, really just as a young person at the time, wondering why there were no social movements. So I'm thinking this was before Occupy. So in the United States between 2001 and 2011, there was, there were no movements. It was the war, the, in the shadow of the war on terror uh, and the attacks on the World Trade Center, there was very little dissent, very little space to protest. If you protested you would be put into a pen. The police would rope off a little area and they said, that's the free speech zone, protest right there. And if you left mm -hmm. it, you'd get arrested. <laughs> and so, I mean, and which is not democracy, right? They'd kettle you. I mean, it was just, it was so demoralizing. And why, you know, why bother? Um, something, and so something broke. And it, again, it was the example of the international movements and seeing people in all of these different contexts. So whether under a dictatorship or under, um, you know, a parliamentary system that wasn't responsive, people saying we want democracy, right? And that, that I think that call, as you just said, that carried into Hong Kong, into Chile, 
what's happening right now in Chile is amazing that they're rewriting the constitution, right? I mean that, but that is something that in the United States, we can't, we are, we are not, we're, you know, that's not an avenue for us. Like, because the way that our constitutional system works, you know, it's not subject to any, uh, it's just ridiculous, this, the system we're in. You know, so I think countries also have to, citizens have to figure out, well, what, where am I? <laughs> what will work here? You know, and also um, how do we get organized? Because obviously the Arab Spring had a very different outcome. It did not democratize, you know, it, I mean, if you look at the example of Egypt, right? I mean, uh, uh, because people, because there were other, other forces in play, there were other groups that were more organized, that were more mercenary in their pursuit of power. Um so I think you know we've learned some really tough lessons, and one thing I'm wrestling with now in my in another book I'm writing now is the fact that you know these we've we've had historically huge protests in the United States. Um, so, for example, after the uh, when when the Iraq War was beginning, there were massive protests against the war, the biggest protests in history, right? But it was just one day, and nothing happened. Um, so we have these huge protests. We have international climate strikes. You know, we uh, the George Floyd uprisings last year in the spring, 25 million Americans participated. Mind-boggling number. And yet it didn't, and it, I'm thrilled it happened, right? And yet my question is, well, what would happen if a million of those people were organized and kept in, and stayed engaged every day? Um, or even 100,000 of them. So I, I think we we have we have to think about um, we just have to think beyond metrics. It's not just about having a mass parade where we come out for one day. I mean, we really have to think about where the leverage is, where how people can be committed. You know, there are there are places where 15 people who are really organized can have more of an impact and do more damage, and I mean that in a good way. Than 150,000 people who come out and put on a funny hat and just, you know, hold a sign and go home. So that's, uh, and I think the internet has made that worse, right? Because the numbers are so crazy. You know, we want everything to go viral. We want everything to be bigger, more clicks, you know, and, and we forget, you know, how much those, those uh, smaller formations have to offer in the kind of intimacy of those commitments. So I, I don't just want breadth, I want depth. And I'd rather have a few people, a few comrades who are really organized than a lot of people, you know, on an email list or something like that, or retweeting something. Uh, and so, you know, there's, I guess, to, to answer your question, right, how will these formations um, evolve? I mean, my hope is that we can figure out how to channel this there is mass interest. 25 million people protested for racial justice and against police violence in the United States. Why aren't those people in organizations? Why aren't those people part of something where their commitment can be expressed every day or every week in a meaningful way? And we have to build those structures and those institutions to support people. But those kinds of things are, are tough to build. Uh, they take resources. And, you know, the kind and um, and they go against the grain of the kind of neoliberal paradigm we're in. Right. Because it's not individualist. <laughs> it's not profit driven. Um, and also, you know, and it's it, and uh, and we we have to really build those from scratch. So that's the dilemma I think we're facing is that there's there's 
potential for mass protest. I mean, the conditions I think are ripe. Inequality is getting more out of control. The tech billionaires are getting more evil. Climate change is intensifying. People are frustrated, but where do they go? (laughs) We have to build things for them to join. Hmm. And I think you just nailed it when you were saying that, that maybe the numbers can be a trap sometimes, no? Because like one of the things that digital platforms like this media give protests is is maybe the wrong incentives, no? It's like this idea yeah. that there needs to be a viral uh, wave of like exchanging something or that the thing needs to be like this million, this sort of like change.org approach to, no, like to collective action. I was reading Sarah Schultman at GAP. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know the name. Yeah. Where it, and one of the things that I found super interesting about her her telling of this oral story is that one of the things that made it work was that they were not working towards a consensus. And I was thinking Mm -hmm. how one of the critiques that the occupied movement had was this idea of the tyranny of structuralness, no? Like this, that the lack of structures was an impediment to actually organizing actual change. And the way she was putting it was that in the other side of the spectrum, there is also the tyranny of consensus, knowing how, for instance, I don't know, like to put an example that she uses, like how feminists are constantly arguing with each other about what's the right way to action. And while they are doing that, they are just not doing the action because, you know, they never quite get in line (laughs) in in the mass movement. And so I wonder if one of the, the keys to push forward and reveal a real potential for change has to do with dismissing the big numbers, like abandoning the idea of the 60 million people protesting the one same thing and making sure that, you know, there is a clear goal, but a million ways of different action that is more local and more related to the local community and, and to the to the cultural and political context of every place. Well, you give me one thought. I mean, I keep doing this where I go back to part of your question from before. I mean, I think the internet gives us two incentives that are off for organizing. One is huge numbers, virality, right? Enormous engagement. A video can have millions of views. A tweet can have tens and thousands retweets. But at the other end of the spectrum, it, it also uplifts the individual. It incentivizes self-promotion, self-branding. So there's these two poles, right? The, the, the mass popularity, virality, and the individual brand, you know, because our, our platforms are really about, you know, our, our personal accounts and our voices. I mean, there can be accounts that represent organizations or corporations or whatever, but these platforms are really about hooking us as individuals. Those two levels are not the levels of the kind of social movements and organizing we're talking about, right? I mean, we call it the debt collective (laughs) because it's about the collective, the we, the community. And that is a scale that the, the internet as we know it is not built to support or enhance. It's this other meso in between level. And it's, that's the level I'm really interested in because I think, you know, I, I think the incentives, as you just said, and you're right, the incentives are totally wrong of this mass reach because it's very shallow. You know, it just passes by when you see these things is is not what we need. We need a deeper engagement. 
And then I also just don't, I don't think that individuals make social change. We have, I mean, individuals, you know, we know through history, we have these wonderful heroes, you know, and Martin Luther King and Greta Thunberg and people who are like these, and they're wonderful, right? But they know, they know that this isn't about them. They know that this is about um, building uh, mass movements and organizing and uplifting others. So I think that's it. It is that in-between space that these social platforms are not really uh, built to help us with. Um, uh, so I think that that's, that's a critical thing. Sorry, I got excited by that. And then lost your second part of the question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Remind me. Well, I was just wondering if, if, and of course I work, I'm a journalist and I work in the media mm -hmm. and there is the part that we haven't talked about yet, which is the role of mass media in either building up or, you know, destroying this movement. And, and right now, like we know that it's Twitter and Google and Facebook, yeah. what defines what constitutes success for a protest, yeah. no? Like, you know, the media is just looking at what's trending in Twitter to see if something is important, which is like, you know, they are run by the same algorithm. They just, you know, don't seem to notice. And so I wonder if, if this is the time where we should just renounce this idea of the mass numbers and go back mm. to the idea of just building up from your neighborhood, just talking to your neighbors next door and whether or not I mean, your first essay from your last book collection talks about briefing together, no? And I thought it was like a very, very beautiful in introduction to yes. this idea that somehow snakes through your book in and out, no? Of like doing things together and doing things at the same time. <laughs> and doing yeah. things together with your neighbors is something that we all did during the pandemic without even knowing and without having any other option. And I'm, I'm mm -hmm. thinking... We didn't use that opportunity in ways that were transformative enough because we were thinking about big numbers, about what everybody was mm -hmm. doing, what everybody should be, mm -hmm. the, the balconies, you know, like at the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I wrestle with the question of scale in my book on democracy. Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone is the name. And each chapter, that book really was in, inspired by Occupy because, and, and by the movements of 2011, because, uh, you know, around the world, as I said, people were saying, we want democracy. And the chant in the United States is, this is what democracy looks like. You know, you, you're marching with your friends and you're shouting at the police. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. And I would always think, well, does it? Is this what democracy looks like? So each chapter in that book is a paradox that I think is central to democratic theory and practice. And one of the chapters is about the paradox of scale, because on the one hand, and this is a very ancient debate in political philosophy, you know, what level does democracy work at? Can you only have dem real democracy with consensus? Okay, that's what you're talking about, consensus. I was like so excited to talk about it. One of the amazing things about your book, apart from the title, which is definitely, and I agree with Ezra Klein that it is one of the best titles out there. Democracy <laughs> might be, might not exist, but we will miss it when it's gone. I was thinking a lot about, about how in, in the last few years, migration, migrant movements have been turning into, into a sort of protest, no? Like for instance, during the midterm, during the last midterm elections, how Donald Trump 
turned the caravan of Central American migrants going towards the border with Mexico into some sort of political protest of its own. And how this connects with, with your book in the ways that you think a lot about what constitutes, I mean, if democracy is the power of the people, what power and to what people <laughs> and how many people can, can, can have that power and how this number will have to be expanding as borders become smaller or at least fluid as people move around the world. And so I was thinking a lot about how you explore in this books, like different ways of expanding the idea of democracy, mm -hmm. of experimenting with maybe adding non-human beings into the equation and maybe adding non-national criteria into the equation. Okay. Yeah, that's such an, I mean, the, the question, it, it relates to this idea that there is this in-between level, the collective. I'm being something between the individual and then whatever everyone you know on earth uh, is you know it's the the bounded community and that's what so the word democracy is demos in kratos if we go back to the ancient Greek and of course ancient Greece isn't necessarily the birthplace of democracy in the way that we're taught to think in schools but it did give us the word democracy and that word means the people demos kratos power or rule. And it's the, the point is, you know, and many people have made this point that the demos is always changing, right? That, so, and, and that can be in a kind of set, uh, sense of the rules of the laws, the, you know, who legally counts as a citizen, you know, whether it's in the United States, you have birthright citizenship. If you're born on American soil, you're an American. It's not the same everywhere. But it also, the demos is always changing because people are dying and being born and that, you know, it's always in flux. The other thing I like about the demos is that it's, it's an abstraction. It's a philosophical idea. It doesn't just exist there. Like something you can point to. We have to imagine it together. We have to decide what it is. So this question of who we are. Um, and that's, I think it's important to always remember that imaginative aspect because people can start to think they know what the demos is. Well, the demos is people like me, you know, uh, who were born here, who have the right heritage, you know, and we're going to take back control. It's like, well, hold on. No, <laughs> this is not, that's, the demos is always open for debate and it can be contracted in these nationalist, racist ways, these anti-immigrant ways, or it can be expanded. So for example, in the United States, it is now required that you are a citizen if you are to vote, you have to be a citizen to have the right to vote. It wasn't always that way. In the uh, colonial era, non-citizens, what are aliens in the parlance of the time, right? People who do not have an American passport could vote. In fact, in some cities here, people who are citizens of other countries can vote in certain elections, elections for the school board, et cetera. I quite like this idea. I And uh, other countries do this. New Zealand, for example, has... Uh, residency requires requirements for voting in elections. And that means if you live somewhere, you're a member of the community. You're a member of the demos. You should have the rights of, you should have democratic rights. And, you know, in other traditions, especially indigenous traditions, um, other non-human entities have rights. 
So animals, <laughs> the non-human, the more than human world, uh, this is something that I'd really like to see taken seriously. And in fact, thanks to some brilliant activists, some towns and cities in the United States have given ecosystems rights. This might sound very outrageous or bizarre to people, but the fact is that according to our legal regime, corporations have legal personhood. They have rights. So we already have non-humans in our democracy, in our demos. So I think, you know, this, uh, what might seem very outlandish is actually quite practical. It's already happening and it's essential to the survival of democracy. My point, and to the survival of life on earth, I personally think if we don't start expanding the demos to include the more than human world, meaning plants and animals, nature, I actually think we will continue to treat them as property and destroy them. So then, and 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 we can already see where that's taking us. So, uh, you know, this seemingly utopian aspect is very pragmatic because I think our survival is at stake. And so that's, I'm always trying to jolt people, you know, remind people things, things have been different in the past. They don't always have to be the way they are. They can be very different in the future. Um, and that imaginative sense of possibility is, is critical to engaging people in the, in the organizing side, to getting people to come on board with something like a campaign to say, you know, okay, in this town, the local river has a right to exist. And we're going to alter our political relationships so that that can happen. For example, there's a famous uh, lake in the United States called Lake Erie in Ohio. And the citizens just gave Lake Erie rights. So granted rights to nature. This of course is happening in Ecuador and other countries, New Zealand. Um, so I think these things are important to talk about because we really have to, we have to change profoundly, you know, what, what we think of when we think of democracy, what we think of when we think of the community, of the demos, of who should be considered in our choices and in our actions. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the reasons why I, I love the way you relate to this paradoxical aspect of our community thinking, because it is ridiculous for some people, even though we are now in the middle of this sixth extension and it's becoming clear to pretty much everyone that our destiny is, is profoundly connected or linked to the destiny of our rivers and the ocean and our forests, etc., etc. And yet we are way more understanding when it comes to companies that are the ones that are destroying <laughs> this potential relationships and definitely our descendants' future. Like I like that how Kim Stanley Robinson, who was our first guest in reprogramming, is linking all this together, you know, as a potential ministry defending the rights of the ones the non-human beings in the planet, but also the unborn, the ones that haven't been born yet and whose future is being destroyed by the same companies we do give a place in the community and, and legal rights to. And I was wondering, like, you know, thinking before I give you away to our special guests, if a protest like, say, Occupy lasts long enough, it becomes sort of a democracy, no? Like it becomes a democracy in itself and how maybe this thing we were discussing before about how how the next generation of mass protests and social movements will look like if they will be the ones that develop these new ways of introducing non-humans and other 
other entities into the community and ways to relate to them and represent them and all this. I don't know how would it look, but I wonder if this would be the way to go. Oh, I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I think this is, it's interesting. So one, I, I've never read Kim Stanley Robinson's book, but I have been sent a page from his new novel by a dozen friends because he writes about a debt strike, a student debt strike. So I think we're definitely uh, on a similar page. And hopefully that means he's he's read about the debt collective. I mean, I think this question of how we expand our democracy to include the more than human world. I mean, there, there's many ways I sort of think about it a little bit in the book, you know, but we have, you know, think about how we treat humans. We include infants, young kids, you know, in our democracy. And when we think about them, you know, they, they don't literally have the right to vote. You have to wait till you're a certain age, but we know, we know how to count people in different ways. You know, we know how to uh, include the interests of people who aren't necessarily, um, voting or or then serving as representatives. So I just think it's a bit of what's what's lacking is both a bit of imagination, but then also the material power to push a different vision and a different agenda. And that the fact is that the economic system we're in, you know, in, in a capitalist economic system, one of the sort of central aspects of it is you know being able to treat the the world you know as a resource. As, as a resource to exploit, as a resource to commoditize so that these corporations that do have legal rights, you know, can can make products and make profits. And so it butts right up against the capitalist imperatives, right? Because if you say, well, hold on, you know, maybe the natural world is not property, but something else. It's in a different category. <laughs> it should be included not not just on, on you know, it should be included um, on moral grounds, you know, on pragmatic grounds because we'd like to survive, but it's going to impinge on your ability to engage in the kinds of production, distribution, and exchange that you're used to. I mean, that's going to be an enormous fight. And that's why I'm so focused on organizing. That's why I'm so focused on how we build power, because these things go right against the sort of imperatives and incentives that are driving uh, the economic order that we live in, an economic, an economic order that is global. And that's why we can't just retreat to our communities. <laughs> That's why we have to think of this paradox of scale, both the individual and the global, the micro and the macro, because that is the world we're living in, you know, where we have to think these systems at once. Um, but I, I, I totally, I would like to, to maybe, before we go into the next phase, end on this note. And, you know, I also think our demos has to expand to include people who aren't yet here yet. And I think this question of democracy and time is a really interesting one. It's when I write about, you know, that democracy both takes time, right? We need to be able to slow down, to deliberate, to be in a space together, <laughs> to be committed for the long haul. Um, and then it should be trans, not just global, so transspatial, but transtemporal, because we're building on what our ancestors did. We're inheriting the world from them. And we want to leave something better for the people come after us. So I think, you know, democ it, I, I love things when they're complicated, you know, and it's both, we have to be where we are, in space, well connected to people across the world by we were, we're connected because of carbon uh, carbon dioxide, because of viruses, <laughs> because of um, uh, global supply chains, but we're also connected through history, uh, through you know the all of the things that happened to get us where we are today, and we're connected moving forward. So we have to think all of those different scales at once. So 
paradoxes are everywhere and we just have to deal with them. That's, that's the nature of life. Well, I think that's an excellent, excellent place to leave it and maybe let our three special guests tonight to ask their own questions before our viewers can get the answers to theirs. Hi, thank you for sharing with us these thoughts about coming together and speaking and transforming feelings of shame into solidarity and some kind of power and action. It was really nice to hear because politics is a lot of times presented to us as a protest or direct action and not as sitting together and building something concrete. And that would actually be my question. What do you see as perspectives and limitations of community organizing in regards to communities of resistance being at the same time constituents, building something, building new realities, and at the same time being destituents, so attacking the existing power relations, or more simply, how to balance between taking a person who doesn't have papers to the doctor and attacking the unjust health system? That would be my question. So such a great question. I saw that you're a social worker. Well, again, you know, I mean, it's the, one of the paradoxes that we have to contend with. And I don't think we can come on the side of one or the other um, because, you know, I feel a strong conviction that we have to make people's lives better. People are so abused. They are so mistreated. And I, and I also think there's a political component to that because when we help to improve our circumstances together through forms of mutual aid, through helping people, you know, maybe get papers to use your example or get their debts canceled to use the example from the debt collective. I think we build a kind of trust. Um, and hopefully that helps us build the solidarity to be the destituents, you said, right? To, to be a force that can then transform things. So I think there's a way we can make these seemingly opposed uh, aspects of our work actually work in tandem to make us stronger. So uh, the debt collective, provides, we call it, we sometimes say legal mutual aid or kind of services. You know, you can use these tools and you can dispute your debts. What we try to do is to say, but you're not doing this on your own. We're trying to break out of this idea that you get a service as an individual going to the state, but no, let's collectivize this process. Let's also use this as a moment of political learning. Why is it so hard to exercise your rights? Why do they make the website so it doesn't work? Why do they make the paperwork so onerous and impossible to understand and in language that doesn't make sense? So political, those are political questions. So uh, there's a kind of political education in that. Um, and then hopefully we build trust. Again, we help uh, give people some breathing room so that they can engage on a deeper level. And there's lots of precedent for things like this. I mean, you know, one example we point to is the example of the Black Panthers, who in the 60s mm. ran programs that were really about care, providing the care the state wasn't provided, providing, so free lunch for, for kids, you know, so that little kids could eat so they could learn, you know, eat at school so they could actually pay attention in class instead of just being hungry. And they did that, that they did that, you know, again, to build the trust of the community to uh, and to ultimately build a radical community that would have a far more critical uh, take on the state and on on the economy. So I think, you know, we have to do both of those things, um, and we but we can't reduce ourselves to just being service providers and doing the cleanup work, right? To be doing the tasks that the state <laughs> won't do. We always have to be doing it with that radical critique 
and with an, uh, an eye on a, a, a transformative horizon. And that's just a, it's just a balancing act. I think we, you know, we have to be there. Cause I, I, the question then is, if you're not providing service, if you're trying to organize people who are in very stressful conditions and you're not actually making material improvements in their lives, like why are they in the, why, why would they join you? <laughs> you know, the risk is then that you end up only attracting people who want to be part of a subculture and it's not, uh, it doesn't have that mass, that, that, um, that ability to appeal. So I think, uh, you know, I think it's a really important question. I think it's something a lot of organizers all over the world are dealing with. Thank you. Well, organizing is messy. You always say that. It definitely is. Hello, I'm lawyer and political activist. Uh, thanks a lot for a great conversation. You have answered so many uh, questions that I needed to build a different perspective. So hopefully this question will be interesting for you. So my question actually starts with a thesis that political organization from below is not necessarily in itself a positive thing. People can also organize for goals that harm others. In the last 30 years of Slovenian independence, this has been demonstrated in referenda, which are the most eminent forms of direct democracy. At different referendums, people in Slovenia have rejected, that is, voted against equality of single women in access to artificial insemination, against the social and economic rights of so-called erased people, and against uh, equal rights of LGBT people. Do you also see the dangers of direct democracy? Aren't you sometimes scared of the totalitarianism from below? How do you see the relationship between representative constitutional democracy and the direct democracy? That is such a good question. And I absolutely share that concern. And something I, I write a bit about in the book, Democracy May Not Exist, that I mentioned uh, I mean, referenda are very blunt instruments, so we don't have them at the federal level, the national level in the United States, but some states use them, uh, and it was part of the progressive era reforms. And the reformers who initiated referenda, you know, thought, okay, this will cure democracy. The people will vote directly. They had no way of anticipating all of the problems with this method. I mean, you know, for example... Um, uh, yes, as you say, people can vote for undemocratic uh, outcomes, sometimes for hideously racist policies. That certainly happened here. And then there's also examples where, a recent example, for example, in California, where there was a change thanks to organizing, labor organizing, uh, and there were changes at the state level to say that people who work for Uber and other tech jobs are actually workers deserving of rights. Mm -hmm. And then the tech companies spent $200 million on one of these referenda and really confused uh, the public about it uh, and, and basically promoted disinformation, intimidated uh, dri the drivers from these companies, et cetera, and defeated this, uh, this progressive law. Uh, so I think there are real challenges. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think democracy is just voting yes or no, yes or no on a hotly contested issue, <laughs> you know, and I think it's, I think it's fair to say there has to be more choices than this vision of direct democracy uh, and the representative systems 
we have now. I mean, certainly that was part of my problem with Occupy. So Marta, I thought, rightly said that I was both a participant and a critic and a, a loving critic, but a critic. And one of my biggest criticisms was that this idea of direct democracy and consensus, which I didn't think was very democratic. The idea was that anyone who showed up the meeting showed up at a meeting, a general assembly, had an equal vote to everyone else, uh, and that things could only progress if there was a majority, a very strong majority. Uh, so it wasn't perfect consensus, but close. And this actually excluded a lot of people. Um, it uh, it meant that people were making decisions and then not doing the work because they just left, you know, they went home and they never came back to the movement. So I think direct democracy, I'm not sure it exists <laughs> I don't, in those ideas. I don't think it's expressed uh, by that that model that was at Occupy or by the referenda that you're talking about. I mean, look at the example of Brexit in the UK, right? Many people were trying to, uh, so there's two things. One is there was the the, the sort of right-wing racist motivation of many voters. And then other, there were also other voters who were trying to express a protest vote, but they ended up doing it in a forum where it had to totally destructive outcome because, you know, they were there. They didn't anticipate um, necessarily that the outcome that, that, uh, you know, that Brexit would actually be successful. So I think we need new models. So one thing I look at is you know, how, how could we break out of these models by using sortition or randomness, randomly selecting citizens into citizens' assemblies to do some deliberation? You know, what we need to, again, to go back to this idea of imagination, these can't be our only two alternatives because they're both broken. But 100%, democracy is always risky. It is dangerous. It is a dangerous, dangerous enterprise. The problem is that rule by the rich is more dangerous. Rule by technocrats, you know, the experts who know is certainly dangerous. And so we have to, I think we do have to figure out how um, how to create systems that will help mitigate some of the problems of democracy and, and um, create more trust, create more community, so that hopefully people will be less inclined to vote for uh, totalitarian outcomes. People will be less, I mean, we know that all sorts of factors feed into you know, reactionary politics. One, a big one is loneliness. A big one is isolation. A big one is helplessness. You know, um, scarcity, a lack of solidarity, feeling that we, we there's you know we're we're operating within scarcity. So we need to address, I think, those root causes and not expect that just like a tweak to the political game is going to do it because there are deeper things going on. Thanks. Yeah, and you also, I mean, I remember, and you pretty much start your book. The democracy might be you know, <laughs> the democracy book, quoting Rousseau, no? Who, from the very beginning, he's stating, like, there is this paradox where we are trying to create democracy from undemocratic partners, yes. <laughs> I guess. I remember this interview that to Bernie Sanders where he was asked, so what do we do with all these people that are poor and that are in the fringes of society? And they insist in voting Donald Trump and voting people that are always going to cause them harm. And what he was saying is we give them money to go to university, we give them health care, we give them better housing, we give them, which is exactly what you just said, no? that a big part of this problem has to do with despair, with people that are voting through despair. Yeah, people have been told for decades that the reason that they're precarious or feel downwardly mobile is because of the immigrants and not because of the CEOs of companies. And, you know, the problem is there are a whole lot of people who 
who are encouraging that and exploiting that interpretation and have invest are invested in that interpretation. Um, so this goes back to the idea that demos is always changing and evolving. You know, I don't think that democracy is just a poll. You know, this like whatever people want in this moment, that's democratic. No, we're engaging in debate. We're engaging in transformation and we're trying to, to bring people to a, a different perspective. Um, but I love the, the Rousseau's paradox is exactly right. He said, you know, it's uh, the paradox of democracy is there's basically a question, you know, how do you create democracy out of an undemocratic people? So what do you need first, democratic institutions that create democratic people or democratic people to create those institutions? And we're stuck in that that loop. And I think that that's, um, that's why, you know, as you go to the, your very first point about transforming ourselves, right? It's part of it. And then we want to build structures that will encourage the capacities of others and help um, uh, you know, shift shift their politics. But I think we do always have to be alert to the fact that things can go awry and that's okay. I personally just don't think there's a system where our troubles are going to disappear. You know, I think that's just the human condition. That's just very undemocratic. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, you know, every generation gets to make their own mistakes, I guess. So. But hopefully we can impart some good luck in it. Well, I think this is now my turn. <laughs> and thank you so much for a very interesting conversation that really started a lot of ideas in my mind. I would actually like to stay on the topic of democracy and rather connect it somehow to the topic of relationship between social movements and democracy. You know, when you mentioned in your talk, the slogan, this is what democracy looks like, I always understood it a little bit differently because I think when it first appeared in and around anarchist movements, it was not so much used to show the empowerment of the people, but rather to, to show, you know, in clashes with the police that was repressing social movements, how democracy is actually a very violent way of producing social order. And this is actually my question. Based on the experiences of Occupy and other movements, I think that democracy is oftentimes a source of tool of the ruling classes to actually bring people back into the status quo. So for instance, uh, and I'm sure you know this better than me, like when you mentioned the example of Chile, where, you know, the initial protests were extremely anti-capitalist, anti-statist even, are now being described as the democratic movements, you know, trying to improve the constitution and the state. Or for instance, when in the United States, the anti-police and of course, anti-racist protests started to happen, well, long before George Floyd was, was murdered, like, for instance, in 2014 in Ferguson and so on, these were not the movements to improve democracy. They went so far as to actually demand the end of the police or the end of the funding of the police, the police free zones and so on, and then were kind of transformed again into sort of democratic processes, into election processes and so on. So in a way, and I think that Occupy was probably the best example of how democracy is sometimes used to, to not really to describe what we are doing, but rather to describe a process in which parts of social movements who hold the biggest subversive potentials are pushed out of that space of a social movement. And I think that like, especially in Occupy, wherever the movements were far more based on direct action rather than consensus making, those were the Occupies that went further in their anti-capitalist critique. So 
to sum it up, <laughs> I would really like to hear you speak about how do you feel about democracy being used as a sort of tool of silencing the movement, of neutralizing the movement, and of actually recuperating the movement into the sphere of continuing the status quo. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I wish we had more time than we had to get into this. I mean, what I think, I think it, you know, this, you're getting at what a slippery word the word democracy is. So I think one reason I wrote this book on democracy in, in the moment, why I started working on it in the moment of Occupy, is because this word was being invoked by all of my anarchist friends at Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Oakland, right? When they were saying this is what democracy looks like, I think it had a dual meaning. One is, well, it means the, the police beating us for protesting, but it did mean we in the park are small d democracy. There was an attachment to that word, and it meant that everyone's voice matters, that people participate as equals, that there's no outside, um, that, you know, again, there was uh, uh, emphasis on consensus, all of these things. People should have a say over the decisions that affect their lives. There should be, and of course, there was a an, an economic component of that, right? That you can't have democracy in a world with the 1% you know, of it, in a world of extreme inequality or under capitalism. Um, at the same time, you know, the word democracy sat poorly with me after 10 years of the war on terror, of discussions of liberal democracy, of hearing George W. Bush say, we're bringing democracy to Iraq, to Afghanistan. So what was interesting for me is I felt uh, uh very critical of the word democracy. You know, I just felt that it had been totally co-opted and that liberal democracy isn't democracy in any meaningful way. It's oligarchic and, you know, that are, uh, and so, you know, within, as I wrote the book though, I came around to the <laughs> radical idea of like, no, we should reclaim, we should reclaim the radical, you know, meaning of democracy. Like, are we just going to keep switching words out because, the words we use get co-opted or confused. Like, no, let's just fight, fight for words that, uh, and fight for the meaning behind them, the intention, the equality, the justice, you know, and the fact that, and use people's weapons against them. Okay. You say you're for democracy. Well, how can you have democracy or, you know, which supposedly is based on political equality under conditions of extreme economic inequality, right? So you say you're for democracy. Well, that lies in direct tension with the world as it exists. Um, so yeah, I think I came around from a view that was more averse to the word or not. I think I did. I know I did for a word that a view that was adverse to the word to just be like, no, let's fight for it. Right. Like let's infuse the word democracy with it, with, uh, you know, a radical meaning or, or actually what I, again, I would just say like, if, if we really mean it, right. If we mean that we want a system based on, on, on equality, well, then we're going to have to have the we're going to really have to take that seriously. And that's going to mean a radical refashioning of the world. It's going to mean transcending capitalism. It's going to mean I'm just totally changing our political and economic structures. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I think, you know, there's no, there's no way for, I mean, the, the, the movements on the left, you know, in 2011 and today in the United States, they just aren't strong enough really to um, to have an impact like that's, you know, I think people uh, and so people are there's a sense of, you know, you can say like, OK, the democracy or the state or whatever has co-opted or de-radicalized these movements. I mean, they still like I just think it's a question of 
the radical side of, uh, of the political spectrum, just like not being very big, not being very well organized. Um, I do think there are a million ways where activists and organizers can get sucked into affirming the system, right? You think that you're going to have an impact this way and ultimately you're spinning your wheels. I mean, people have to resist that. You know, we have to figure out how we engage with the world as it exists and the political structures in a way that is both adversarial, but also hopefully effective. Um, you know, that brings us back, like, back to the point of making a material difference in people's lives and showing that participating in these efforts has a point. So I don't know. I think that, you know, I think... This is, uh, uh, you know, attention because you have to engage with the world as it exists and with the political system uh, that you're, you know, that I'm second. I'm constrained by the fact that I live in the United States and all of the idiosyncrasies and <laughs> totally uh, just absurd elements, uh, the power structure here. Like I, I don't, I do, as an organizer, I don't want to just step outside of that and not engage it because I think ultimately... Uh, you know, ultimately, it's just too important to work somewhere else. So I, I think there's, you know, there are real challenges, there are real tensions. But, um, but for me, I, I've come around to the idea that democracy is a word that we, we need to fight for and infuse with a kind of radical meaning and reclaim. And I think also the last thing I'll say on this is that in the United States, it's becoming more apparent. Because the right wing is radicalizing against democracy explicitly. So I show this in my book. And in my film, What is Democracy? I talk to young conservatives. And um, their point, their, the point that I've heard many times from folks, is that basically they recognize that capitalism and democracy are at odds because they think that if there was more democracy, people would tax the rich and people would want welfare and these things. And so basically they're like, we want capitalism. You know, uh, and I think this is part of the post-Cold War world we're in. You know, in the Cold War paradigm, democracy and capitalism were presented as, you know, married, right? That was sort of the mythos of the Reagan era and the Clinton era, even like kind of. And I think now they're decoupling. And we are hearing a lot of right-wing politicians and thought leaders basically saying, well, the United States isn't a democracy. We're a republic. Why? Because they know that if they lived up to even this minimum definition of democracy as majority rule, that we get policies that they hate, you know, that we have communities defunding the police and things like that and spending money on education and healthcare and all of these things. So I, in this moment too, of this uh, radicalizing of the right, if they're going to start being explicit that they hate democracy and they choose inequality, they choose capitalism, they choose white supremacy, I think taking democracy, uh, taking that position is more important than ever. But that was something that really shocked me. The, re the rhetoric on the right is changing here. Um, and they're becoming explicitly and proudly anti-democratic. And that is not new. That is how this country was built. That is the paradigm of you know, Jim Crow. That is the paradigm of the founding of this country. And so what we're seeing is a kind of um, conservative return to their elitist, yeah, anti-democratic roots. So we're in an interest, you know, an interesting moment, meaning a scary moment here with that. Sorry, too many thoughts trying to fit them into a not quick answer. Well, to add to what you just said, there is also the example of China, no? And how China is basically 
kind of surpassing the United States as an economy superpower precisely by way of not being a democracy. And I was following this almost drama with the Evergrande loan company that didn't default, that didn't cause the 2008 big crisis that it was promising. And it makes me wonder if sometimes I wonder, you know, if this was all like almost like a like a propaganda campaign to show that the Chinese government is willing to look after things when they get too bad, like to control capitalism <laughs> when it's going to break things precisely because it can, because of way of, of not being a democracy. So I wonder how much. That's why so many, so many guys in Silicon Valley, you know, appointed that as the model they would prefer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think beautiful nature is now going to introduce the questions from our viewers. Hi, nature. How are you doing? Hi, Marta. I'm doing fantastic, especially after this talk. And Astra, it's just amazing to meet you. I, I've been inspired by your work for, for years now. Now today, we have selected three questions from the audience. The first one by Bernadette Buckley. I would like to ask Astra if she could say a little more about this issue around change slash continuity, which she alluded to briefly at the start specifically about the role of art in relation to the creation of change. There are huge arguments around this issue, obviously, but it would be useful to hear Astra's perspective. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I felt myself reading that question, taking the, making the assumption that art represents the vanguard that pushes us forward, pushes us to see the world differently, challenges our preconception. And art can do that, but it so much doesn't, or so much of our, our cultural, uh, so many of the cultural products we're subjected to don't. I'm thinking about a conversation I had years ago, actually, after I made my documentary about Slavoj Zizek, <laughs> and I was talking to uh, a peer, and he was going into Hollywood, making films for Hollywood, and he's now a very successful Hollywood film director. And he said to me, very contemptuously, Astra, you just make propaganda, you know, that mm -hmm. I make propaganda for the left, propaganda for philosophy. And I looked at him and I said, no, you make propaganda. You make propaganda for the white middle class, you know, for these, for the consumer society. You know, you're, you, you make these films that are full of product placement and, you know, just are stories of people, uh, you know, in the suburbs. <laughs> you know, it was interesting, though, because the idea was, the assumption was that if you're making something political and you're saying, you know, things should change, um, I don't know, that you're somehow going against the grain or, or making propaganda. So, um, you know, I think part of why, my point is that part of why we, we do need art to push the envelope uh, is because so much of the cultural sphere, so much art is actually invested in continuity, is ultimately invested in maintaining things, and it looks very innocuous just looks like the movies my friend was making, you know, or is and still is. Um, so I think we we need to kind of call out, yeah, call, kind of be critical of and call out all the things that that look neutral and are actually on the side of continuing sort of oppressive dynamics. At the same time, you know, I'm, you know, I, I use filmmaking when I can. I try to engage in creative actions, but, uh, you know, for me, Art has to be ultimately, if we want change, then we have to go beyond just the realm of culture of changing narrative and really think about 
organizing, power building, all of these things. So for me, it's always, you know, that art does have to be in the, it can't be reduced to social movements, but at least we have to use creativity in service of social movements. Um, and, uh, and for me, a big motivation to get involved in Occupy was that I just didn't want to kind of be engaged in my own creative production as a filmmaker uh, without actually taking a side and taking a stand. So I, I, I think we, sometimes there's a little bit too much emphasis on the realm of like changing culture or changing ideas first and less on, on the, on actually doing the hard work. But anyway, I don't think my friend was happy with me that day. <laughs> Zarya asked the following question. Astra, in an interview for Another Gaze, you said that your first big project as a child was to make a magazine about ecological issues and animal rights. And to this day, you are still a big advocate for both. Besides the obvious ecological reasons, why is fighting for animal rights an important fight to fight? Well, that's a deep cut. I would recommend that anyone who is thinking about these issues read a book called Beasts of Burden, Animal and Disability Liberation by my sister, Sonora Taylor. If anyone has seen my film, Examined Life, my sister is in it in a wheelchair. She's, she uses a wheelchair and she's walking with the philosopher of gender and politics, Judith Butler, and talking about embodiment and her connection. She talks about her connection to animals in that film, actually. And then she explores that theme more in depth in, in the book. Uh, I mean, yeah, my vision of, of radical democracy includes the non-human world. It includes animals. Um, I think we have to think about animals, I'll be brief or try to be, because our, our survival is bound up with theirs, right? So there's, I think, a growing awareness in the U.S. because of the movements for racial justice, the uprisings after the murder of George Floyd, that, you know, white supremacy is also horrible for white people. <laughs> you know, it actually is deadly for white people. I mean, literally, people are dying of their attachments to whiteness because racism means, you know, people uh, vote against a more robust welfare state. You know, they vote against their interests because they're trying to assert uh, or they're trying to keep other people down. I think speciesism ultimately has not the same, but uh, analogous effect. When we treat other animals, other living beings as mere property, as things we can abuse and exploit, that has consequences that are going to come back and bite us. So one major way is through zoonotic illnesses, right? So COVID-19, you know, very likely originated in a bat. It's a zoonotic illness, meaning it jumped the species barrier. Well, the next big pandemic is probably going to emerge in a factory farm going to be a form of avian flu or swine flu, or it's going to become, uh, it might be uh, antibiotic resistance because we, um, you know, feed animals that are being tortured in these industrial farms. We feed them antibiotics because they're kept together in such horrible abusive conditions. So there's a self-interest aspect, but ultimately, you know, for me, it's, it's ethics. And I just read an essay with my sister, Sonora, uh, about uh why, how socialist feminism, it builds on the work of Sylvia Federici, and animal, how we can apply the lens of socialist feminism and attention to reproduction, social reproduction, and a kind of, you know, so updating our Marxism to include not just production in the factory, but reproduction of life, how we can apply that lens to the question of animals, and why, actually, I think if you're a feminist, if you're a socialist, if you're a communist, you have, you should if you have want to have intellectual integrity, be concerned with animals. So that essay will be out next week. And um, 
and free for anyone to re- read if they want to uh, engage in this question uh, at a deeper level and a, in a, I hope, a very provocative level because we've decided to really make our case as strongly and poignantly as possible. Um, you know, ultimately, for me, my my politics are incompatible with treating life as property. That's what it comes down to for me. Thank you for this answer. I couldn't agree more, and I'm looking forward to the to the essay. I'm happy you did. Yeah, yeah. you're a person that yeah. agrees. <laughs> now for our third and last question, Dayan asks: I am wondering how to sustain a community. In arts, people are used to project-based communities that last for a week or a month and therefore have a totally fragmented schedule. Long-term communal fights need commitment and physical presence. Yeah, Dejan, I mean, I'm, I'm wrestling with the same thing. It's very interesting how that question is phrased because I, it really speaks to me. I, too, am used to project-based creative timelines. Let's come together and make a documentary film together or you know, come together and be a band, come together for this, you know, burst of creative expression and focus, and then um, it fades away. And it has been a real challenge for me as both an introvert, Marta mentioned being an introvert, you know, someone who can sit and read and write and likes to be alone, (laughs) uh, and someone who is used to working in this creative project mode to try to build a sustained community, a community of debtors with a radical vision. And, and to have that community be one that, um, you know, has a, has a radical politics, a critique of the status quo, but also doesn't alienate other people, invites people in, right? Is saying, okay, you too can join us. We're, we're not exclusive. Um, it's fine if you're not totally 100% on the same page as us yet. We can talk it out. You know, we can ask questions together you know, uh, and, and you're welcome. And this is a safe space for you to ask questions about it. Maybe you're not totally convinced that should be canceled yet. Maybe you think only some or a bit. Okay, well, let's, you can come here and and there's a space for you. So I don't know. I mean, it, there's, there's two, multiple levels to the challenge of building community. One is what's the culture of it? You know, I mean, call me a hippie. I want to create a culture that's pretty kind. <laughs> I think we have to not just tell people what to think, but listen to them, engage in true democratic dialogue. Then there are the ish, the aspects of building a community I'm not as good at, but I try to pull people in who are, and those are questions of process, you know, questions of like, well, what are the processes by which this community is? They're questions of governance, essentially. How do we make decisions, right? Is there a tyranny of structure that's happening where there's secret people over here making all the decisions or are things transparent? You know, are we actually honest about it. Are there power differentials? Well, are those power differentials legitimate? You know, maybe this person has more power over here because they have more experience and knowledge, or they have this lived experience. They've lived through it. So they know something that the rest of us don't know because we haven't lived through it. I think having that all on the table and having a discussion about it helps build community and build trust. Um, A community in the sense that I'm aspiring to build with this also isn't isn't uh, dependent on one personality <laughs> to carry it. And so that's, it also changes. So just like I said, the demos is evolving. You know, I think a real community like this, you know, even people who seem like core figures, you know, who you think oh, we couldn't do this without you. Like they, the community has to be resilient enough to let those people step back, you know? So 
my dream for the debt collective and the, and, and the radical debtors movement I'm trying to build is that one day I'll be introverting, <laughs> not one day, you know, for years on end, doing some obscure project that may be about animals. And I'll be like, wow, that community is still going without me. They don't need me anymore. Um, and I can be a well-wisher from afar. But I think these things, like the culture and the and the governance and figuring those out are, are key um, because you're operating on a different timeline. A project, you know, is about a show or a deadline or something like that. And, and you're trying to build something that lives on a very different register. Uh, and so you also, the last thing I'll say is you do, I think, need to have some some joy in it. I talked about the need to meet people's needs, to ideally help people at their debts or their papers or whatever. But I think another need we have is just to feel connected, to not feel that loneliness, that isolation that so many people feel. And so another way to build community is, of course, you know, helping to meet people's natural psychological needs. I mean, why have I stayed in the debt collective and stayed organizing for 10 years? Because it makes me feel less alone, which is our slogan. Again, you are not alone. So being part of this makes me feel that I'm in a community, that there are others who have my back. And that is, you know, incredibly valuable in this day and age. Well, thank you for everything. That's all the questions for today. And Marta, I give the mic back to you. Thank you, Nature. I was, this thing you were saying was resonating, like, super strong with me, Astra. I wonder also we forget the power of rituals, no? Like how mm. rituals create a strong communities by virtue of repetition and prediction, but also like this idea that a community needs to be based on kindness. I don't think this is something that comes only from your kind heart. Like I remember when transcriptions of the conversations of people ass assaulting the capital in January this year, Something that struck me as interesting was that they were assaulting the Capitol and talking about killing the vice president, but the way they were talking to each other was extremely sweet. Mm -hmm. They were asking each other, are you good? Uh, where are you? You take care. You be with God. Like, you know, there was, there was an intense community tenderness in their otherwise rabid and destructive conversations. And I thought, well... This is obviously very lonely people that have found each other in this strange cause. And this is energy that hasn't been put to better use <laughs> by better communities, no? I guess the kindness that often you find lacking in maybe arrangements by left-wing political parties, for instance, that are so based in shame, no? And you're maybe an ecologist, but you're just not you know, recycling well enough, or you might be a feminist, you, but you're just not being, you know, like, I don't know, whatever enough, or you might be an animal activist, but you're not vegan enough. And you're not, you know, like all these communities based in shame are unlikely to trigger the same kind of response as this other communities based in destruction, but also in collective tenderness and care. Yeah. No, I think that's a really a great point. I mean, and I think we always, one good heuristic, if you need it, it's just like, would I respond to being treated like this? You know, do I want to be, um, do I feel engaged by someone who's just critiquing or browbeating me? And we do need to critique. We do need to call people out, but we also need to call people in and make space for people uh, and somehow speak to the immense 
frustration and loneliness and isolation that so many people are experiencing um, now. So I think, yeah, I mean, somebody said, I think it, um, this is a wonderful Nina Turner who's running, uh, she's part of the Bernie campaign and she said something, you know, be tough on systems, but kind on people. And I think that's uh-huh. also a game, a good motto. Excellent. Excellent motto. Tough on systems, kind on people. I really like it. Well, Astra, I'm going to say thank you to you and ask you that when you leave the debt collective in, in good hands and you start your animal rights hyper movement, I want to be there with you <laughs> because that's also thank my dream. <laughs> I'm totally there with you to, to say when and where. And I think we can leave it here. Thank you so much, all of you that have been watching us. Thank you so much, Astra. This has been a dream come true, really. I'm very, very pleased that we had you here and very proud to be your reader and your follower for many years. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for the kindness and thank you to all of you in the in the room for the great questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Next week, we are back with Marta Perano and the founding director of Forensic Architecture, Eyal Baseman. The conversation will be enriched by questions from our special guests. Reprogramming is a podcast series produced by yours truly, Yanis Vakinyansha and Marcelo Kretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts Discursive Program, Tactics and Practice. All episodes were edited and mixed by Gasper Torkar, who is also the author of the amazing original sound and music. The whole thing was coordinated by Sonia Gardina and realized in the framework of CON's Platform for Contemporary Investigative Art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the link in the description. You are furthermore welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content, including the book version of the reprogramming talks. And if you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation, but no pressure, of course. That's all for this episode. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenia.